Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Dan Pasternak and I go back to 2007, when I was just thinking about launching the Comics Comic while he was actually launching Super Deluxe. Dan's career started when he was just a kid with a song on the Dr. Demento show, and he's met or worked with just about everybody in comedy since, even becoming close friends with the late, great Jonathan Winters. Dan helped launch almost every IFC series you love, and he's now doing the same as the head of Big Beach TV. He also has an amazing signed comedy record collection that he writes about for McSweeney's, but that's nothing compared to his Milton Berle encounter. So let's get to it. Dan Pasternak. Sean McCarthy. It's so great to sit down with you with microphones. Uh, the pleasure is all yours. Because I feel like I, I've known you for eight, eight and a half years. But there's so much I don't know about you. Well, I guess that's what this is for, then. <laughs> you had to bring microphones into the relationship. Yes. First of all, uh, your current job, it's with Big Beach TV. You launched Big Beach TV? That's correct. Which means what, exactly? Uh, which, which of those words do you want to find? <laughs> Launch? What exactly is your current job? Uh, I ask myself that every day. Uh, Big Beach TV is born out of the feature film company, Big Beach Films. Mm -hmm. uh, they've been around for a little over a decade and are a true indie film company. Um, they're not part of any big you know, media conglomerate. This is a couple of guys who wanted to make the kind of movies that they uh, believe in, that they're excited about. And uh, it's been everything from Little Miss Sunshine to Sherry Baby to Everything is Illuminated and Jack Goes Boating, which was the only movie that Philip Seymour Hoffman ever directed, to um, Safety Not Guaranteed, uh, which you know launched the directing career of uh, Colin Trevorrow. Um, Kings of Summer, uh, just, I mean, a lot of great movies. And it's like, uh, uh, when I sort of looked at the, the, the breadth of their work and the sensibility uh, that uh, is in everything they've done, uh, it felt like a, like a great place for me to try and um, establish uh, a TV company that uh, I, I think can bring sort of an indie film spirit to to the series world so yeah that's uh, kind of what i was charged with and then we sort of built from the ground up and it's a uh, right now big beach tv is a three-person operation uh two of us are here in the uh new york office and then aaron keating with whom i worked at ifc is uh in our west coast office now when you were a a young child uh bursting onto the comedy scene is this is this what you is this what you imagined your adult life would be? I, you know, it's funny because I don't know that I had a a singular sort of clear-eyed vision of what my adult life would be. I just sort of knew that it would hopefully be a creative life 
and that it would you know, afford me the opportunity to work with um, the kinds of people that inspired me. So um, I think generally, yes, but you know, I think the vision gets clearer and the road gets narrower you know, as you go. Mm -hmm. But your, your vision of middle-aged Dan, how, how close is this to what you're I don't know that I had a vision of middle-aged Dan. I didn't know that, given the way I was living as a as a young lad, that I assumed there would be a middle-aged Dan. Ah, that's, oh. that's a good point. Mm. So, well, let me ask you this. Uh, when was the last time you performed stand-up? Oh, good question. Uh, the Thank last you. time I performed stand-up was... Uh, it's interesting. Uh, Atlanta, Georgia looms sort of very large in this... Uh, in this narrative of the circuitous journey I've been on. And uh, I hadn't done stand-up for probably 15 or 16 years when I was living in Atlanta, and I started performing again. And then when I moved up to the New York area, I did a little bit of stand-up, but it kind of fell away for various reasons. Um, but then when I was back in Atlanta for the Laughing Skull Festival... I want to say in 2014, uh, they asked me to do a spot uh, in the Laughing Skull finals mm -hmm. show. And I think that was probably the last time I got up and, and performed. So, But that, and it had been some time even at that point since I had done a spot. How did, how did that last set feel? You know, a little bumpy. Mm -hmm. um, invariably, I, I, you know... I, I feel like stand-up is is something that you have to be dedicated to. Uh, you can't just sort of, you know, get up and fuck around and have it be great. Um, but I think the laughs were all where they were kind of supposed to be, and I was gratified that I was able to kind of, you know, get through it without making, you know, too much of an idiot of myself. And And you said b before that there was a space of time, and then... You had done stand-up in Atlanta after a period of 14 or 15 years. Mm. What had inspired you to get back up on stage then? Necessity? Oh. Yeah. Uh, so I, I had started doing stand-up. I grew up in L.A., and I started doing stand-up and writing for comedians when I was around 16. And this was really during the height of the boom. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of the mid-'80s to the very early-'90s. Uh, and then when I sort of got into this part of my career that I've been in really for the last 20 years, I, I stopped. Um, I, uh, you know, I was very, uh, I don't know, um, I would say impatient, if not actually unkind, about whatever it was that I thought I brought to the art form. And I thought, geez, you know, I don't know why I'm doing this. There's so many people that are so much better at this than me, and I'm never going to sort of live up to the, the high bar and the sort of idealistic vision of what I think this is supposed to be. So I just stopped. Mm -hmm. um, and I never sort of became the kind of comedian that inspired me, uh, you know, as, as it related to the, to the form. But when I was in Atlanta, I moved there to head content for this new business that Turner had started called Super Deluxe, which was a, you know, uh, it was a digital content platform. Um, 
And so I moved down there, bought a house, adopted a kid. Um, five weeks after I got back from Bogota, Colombia, after adopting my daughter, they pulled the plug on the whole business, they laid off the whole staff, and now I'm in Atlanta with a family and a house that I bought at the top of the market, and I kind of just went into emotional free fall. Mm. But I was also under contract to Turner, so I couldn't take another job. Oh, okay. Um, it was, it was kind of crazy. So uh, Marshall Childs, who uh, runs the Laughing Skull, um, was also, at that time, he had another club called The Funny Farm, and I, I think he was just about to open The Laughing Skull. He, he'd become a friend. Mm -hmm. Just, uh, you know, I wanted to be part of a community. I was disconnected from, you know, my community in L.A., and he basically said, uh, listen, why don't you come out and try your hand at stand-up again? And at that point, I felt like it was almost like a form of therapy, so I was just sort of writing about where I was in my life and what was going on with me. And I was just sort of venting about a lot of stuff that I was feeling at that time. And in a way, because it was a very sort of pure artistic expression and because there was really no uh, cynical sort of show business ulterior motive for what I was doing. Right. I actually, and also because, by the way, I, I had, you know, a lot more life experience, I, I actually started to, um, I think, find myself doing the kind of stand-up that I kind of hoped I would always evolve into doing. So I was doing that there and probably did it for yeah, a year, a year and change before coming up to New York and sort of getting onto the track at... Uh, IFC and now at Big Beach, mm -hmm. so um, it was it was a really it was a good experience. It was a necessary experience, and I, I can say without being too hyperbolic, I, I think it kind of saved my life. Well, you look great, so it did it did wonders. Well, whatever happened, the results are are great. Well, thank you, Sean. You're very <laughs> sweet. How much how much do you identify with Judd Apatow? Oh. Um, in in uh, more and more ways all the time. You yeah. know, it's interesting. Judd and I came up together. Uh, Judd and I knew each other. I think he's maybe a year older than I am. But we met sort of on the open mic scene in the 80s mm -hmm. in L.A. Um, and we were also in film school together. Okay. He was uh, a year ahead of me in the same writing program at USC. So we knew each other back then pretty well. Um it's interesting. I always had a sense that he di didn't like me that much. Um, and, you know, possibly for good reasons. But, uh, <laughs> but it's interesting is that, you know, we've reconnected, not in any kind of significant way, but we're, we're in touch a little bit here and there now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, we're both dads with daughters. And I think we both have a kind of a you know, uh, a nostalgia and an affection as a kind of middle-aged guy that started in stand-up and then got on a different path. Obviously, he, yeah. in a, you know, a much more impressive way than, than myself. But I feel like there's a lot of commonality mm -hmm. that when we do come together that we share. And I loved his book. Loved his book. And I, I it really, I think, came from um, a very good-hearted place as it... Uh, relates to his relationship to, you know, stand-up and comedians. Now, why did you start so young? 
Oh, um, what made you decide, even before you were old enough to drive a car, that you wanted to be in, in show business and comedy specifically? I've always felt like a weirdo, like an oddball. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't tell you specifically where I like had this epiphany. Okay. I can only tell you that gradually the thing that I figured out, like I was an insomniac as a kid and, you know, the, so I watched just a ton of TV. Like I'd get out of bed. I'm, I'm telling you like five, six, seven years old. And I was watching, you know, like Marx Brothers movies on KTLA movies till dawn. I mean, and I'm still this way. Um, so I, I think that I found that things that made me laugh made me feel not so alone. There's actually a great scene that uh, I think Judd specifically authored in Freaks and Geeks where the character of uh, Bill is watching Gary Shandling oh, on yeah, the Mark yeah. Griffin. You know the scene I'm talking yeah. about? And I think Judd sort of said that that, that was like him. him yeah. So that was me. And I had that relationship with um, a lot of different things that made me laugh. Very significantly for me was the Dr. Demento radio show. Um, which I've, I think I've talked about a lot, but that's kind of where it all started for me, where I made my first record when I was 11 years old and got it played on the Dr. Domeno show and where I first met people like Weird Al when he was first starting out on the Dr. Domeno show. But then I started like making films, and then I think when I started going to comedy clubs and had a very uh, um, you know, direct, you know, uh, kind of access to really funny, amazing people at a moment in time when it was just kind of exploding out there in L.A., um, I, I just have sort of always felt that, like, um, like there is... I, I think that we're all kind of childlike in our own way, and I walk around all day, and you know, I just sort of see this kind of behavior that I feel like is... Like we're all these sort of like frustrated children, but I've, I've always felt connected to the way it's expressed by funny people, mm-hmm. and attracted to that. So I, I feel like comedy is like a clubhouse, and from an early age, I just I started like knocking on the door, and I was like, please let me in, uh, and uh, you know I have found my own way to to have a life where I get to spend a lot of time in that clubhouse. It's really interesting because I was listening to your um, podcast with Wayne Fetterman mm-hmm. and sort of thinking about this sort of identification that so many people have as comedy nerds now. A right. Turn a phrase that didn't exist when I was just this weird kid that felt very, very by myself. But whether it's, it's Judd or... Fetterman or Cliff Nesteroff, who you've spoken with, or my friend Jeff Abraham, who's a, a publicist out in L.A. Who, oh yeah, I know Jeff. Yeah, and I mean, there, there's so many people who kind of find their way to take this love and this passion for the art of comedy and the practitioners of that art and whether it's as a writer or as a producer or as a publicist or as a historian or whatever it is, when you kind of find like, oh, this is my way in and this is what I'm good at and this is like what 
I can do to kind of have my little seat at, you know, a table, if not the table in the comedy clubhouse. It's really, really gratifying. So for the record, what was that first record when you were 11? <laughs> for the record, that record <laughs> was, it was two goofy songs that uh, I wrote and performed on the guitar, one of which is called Dan's Song. And um, it's interesting. So uh, not to send people listening to other podcasts, but uh, <laughs> about three and a half years ago, I... Uh, I facilitated having Dr. Demento appear on Chris Hardwick's Nerdist podcast, and okay. then Chris, in turn, was very gracious in asking me to join on that podcast, and of course, the subject of my record came up, and Chris was like, oh, well, you must give me a copy of that record. We must play it, and mm -hmm. of course, I demurred <laughs> because I was 11, and why does that need to be in the universe? And he was like, oh, no, no, you have to give that to me. I was like, oh, I'll see if I can find it, you know, and tried to uh, evade that. And then, of course, Dr. Demento went through his extensive <laughs> record collection and sent Chris a copy. And uh, if you are interested, it is at the end of that podcast. Okay. And you can you can hear it there. And Dan's song was the one that he played, or was it the other song? No, Dan's song is the one that he played. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it made its way into the Dr. Demento Top 10 on and off for, you know, a year or more on the on the you know, on the KMET version of the Dr. Demento show. And was that your first record or just the first one you sent? Uh, well, that was the first thing that I actually, like, produced. Put on a record. Put on, put yeah, on I mean, I... A vinyl. Exactly. And so how young were you when you started learning guitar? Eight. Oh, wow, that's young. Yeah, I, you know, I think a lot of kids that play musical instruments probably start around that age yeah, and I mean it, it was it was it was hardly virtuosic on the mm -hmm. instrument but you know it's basic chord progressions so <laughs> oh it's basic <laughs> I, I, you know I mean if you listen to it you're, you're not gonna go oh wow you know uh, mm -hmm. he could have become Eric Clapton <laughs> uh, you know I, I think that the uh, the proof is uh, uh, to the contrary so you're you're living the high life as an 11-year-old in grade <laughs> school with your record on the radio every week. Uh, did, that, how, did that go to your head? Did it go to my head? Mm, I, <laughs> I mean, it hardly made me the coolest kid on campus. Uh, I mean, it may have made me feel that way in my head. Right, but uh, in terms of you weren't the... But no, big they, kid in. I'm not going to get picked any grade. earlier in you know in, in you know sixth uh, grade you know dance uh, dodgeball or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, um, it uh, you know I, I don't think uh, any girl went out with me because oh you're the guy from the Dr. Demento show, mm -hmm. um, but it definitely at least reinforced in my mind the idea that if you pursue this thing, whatever it is, the the you know, the pursuit of, you know, making stuff um, and really see it through that that can be very gratifying. Um, so, I mean, the fact that it got played and, you know, played more than once on the Dr. Domeno show honestly exceeded what I could have ever dreamed at that point. But it was, it was, uh, um, it, it was definitely kind of laying the foundation for, um, you know, taking creativity and initiative and work ethic and kind of marshalling it towards a goal. How old were you the first time you went to a comedy club? 
Um, As with the intention of performing. With the intention of performing, sixteen. I probably the first time I'd gone, I was maybe fourteen. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you remember who was there? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that lineup actually very specifically. It was the Improv on Melrose, uh, and I can remember uh, Larry Miller was on stage, and Taylor Negron, and Charles Fleischer. And I remember Robin Williams did a drop-in set. Um, which was huge. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know if I remember everyone, but I remember those guys very specifically. And that was, that was magical. Um, it was interesting. The improv was, you know, unlike the comedy store was a club that you could get into if you were underage. And I went with some, uh, older friends. I think I was in the 10th grade, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I remember sort of, if you've ever been to the Melrose Improv, you sort of walk in through the restaurant and then you go into the back. And it, I remember having this sort of cool, almost kind of like speakeasy feeling like, oh, through that portal, you know, lies the, you know, the secret garden. And there's photos on the walls as you go down the hallway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, uh, it, it definitely felt like, oh, I'm going to come back here. I don't know that I felt at that moment like I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of happened in a weird kind of ass-backwards kind of way. What do you mean? Um, when I started, so I was an intern at Paramount Studios when I was 16. How did I, you get that job? Um, I had already been making a lot of films, and uh, I just applied you know, for an internship, and mm-hmm. I got a paid internship where I was getting oh, paid internship. Yeah. It was like, they used to have those. Yeah. It was like <laughs> $6 an hour or something. I mean, it was right. pretty, that's decent money for the eighties. Yeah. And, um, so I had become friends with some of the people in the casting department and one of the assistants there had said, Oh, we're going to a showcase tonight. At, I think it was the improv again. Do you want to come? And because I was there with the casting people, like comedians would come over and talk to them because they, they knew the comedians. And, and they wanted to get cast in things. And sure. And so, um, you know, you'd be kind of off to the side, maybe not in the main conversation, but you'd say something to, you know, one of the comics. And, you know, I'd known, again, as an insomniac, I'd, I knew all of these performers. I'd seen them on the Mike Douglas show and the Merv Griffin show and definitely the Tonight Show with Carson. So you'd say something to one of the comics, oh, I remember seeing your spot on such and such and so and so, and then maybe you say something funny. Maybe you pitch a joke. And a couple of comics had said, oh, hey, that's a great idea. Can I use that? And that kind of blew my mind. And then eventually, after I'd sort of gone a few times and gotten to know a few of these people, there was a comic there named Jimmy Brogan. Oh, okay. Uh, Jimmy Brogan is another Massachusetts guy. Um, He... uh, uh, eventually became the um, sort of the monologue writer for Leno on The Tonight Show and a producer on The Tonight Show and booked all the comics for a good long stretch on The Tonight Show. But at that point, he's you know just a comic, and he said to me uh, something that was almost like a revelation. He said, you know, people get paid for writing jokes. You know, if you're going to give people jokes, you know, you should think about you know offering your services professionally. So I was like, oh, okay, thanks. And he introduced me to Leno because he was really good friends with Jay. And then Jay would wind up buying a bunch of jokes from me when he was just starting to guest host The Tonight Show. And then eventually guys like Leno would say, as I was writing jokes and sort of 
going around trying to sell them to people, um, Jay would say, uh, yeah, that joke, it's uh, not really right for somebody like my age, but it would be great coming from you. And so <laughs> eventually, a bunch of these comics sort of encouraged me up onto stage, and, um, and then I just started doing it. And I would go on the road with friends of mine, particularly friends that I was writing for, because they would say, hey, I'm going to be headlining for this week. Do you want to come be my opener? And eventually, do you want to come be my middle mm -hmm. act? And then I'd have a week on the road, and then they'd have a week with a guy who'd be there, you know, writing jokes for them. So, so, you, so you sold jokes before you performed jokes? Yes. Yeah. That is Bass Hackworth. Yeah, a <laughs> little bit, a little bit. But um, I, I think I never sort of came to performing with this idea of sort of, um, like, look at me. Mm -hmm. It was much more about kind of like, oh, this is what I thought of. I got to tell you the stuff that I thought of. So the writing kind of informed the performing as opposed to me thinking about like, oh, here's my performance ability. Now let me write to that. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. So you weren't a musical comedian. You had dropped. You know, it was very or, funny. Or did you still I did very early on, very, very early on, like the first few months, bring a guitar up and do like a couple of guitar things super early I, that fell away pretty fast because that was your first big hit was playing <laughs> the guitar so it's like um yeah but that's i my I, thing uh it's not right? like i was doing yeah. the song that i wrote for the dr domeno show when i was 11 it's just <laughs> they know. didn't have throwback thursday back then yes exactly exactly <laughs> uh what do you remember about your first time on the road um what was the road like for young dan pasternak in the mid to late it was 80s it was actually really exciting. It's funny. There's a scene in um, Birbiglia's movie. Sleepwalk with me. Sleepwalk with me, where he goes on the road for the first time. And it's like a depressing, terrible little hotel room. And he's thrilled to be in it. <laughs> yeah. And it's so funny because the irony of that like excitement about being in a really like shitty hotel room, I remember that. I remember all of that. It was really sort of... There was something very palpable about like like I remember going through a drive-through, like a terrible like a you know like a Del Taco kind of drive-through and spending you know twelve dollars on whatever I was getting at like eleven o'clock at night, and spending the money that I had made telling jokes. And I remember like having this conscious thought like I'm buying food because I made this money going on stage and telling <laughs> jokes. Um, it's like a it's like a almost incomprehensible kind of thrill, but <clears throat> it it, so, it sounds like uh, leaving the casino with having won. You gambled and you won, and you left the casino with money. Yeah, but you with know the casino's money. But it's even more gratifying than that because there's some kind of a validation of your mm, right of your. It's, it wasn't luck. It was uh, yeah. It, there's something like uh, you know I. Again, I love the idea of having a creative life and then being rewarded for having a creative life in some tangible way is almost, it almost feels like you're getting away with something. <laughs> Do you know yeah. what I mean? Oh, yeah. So to be given like a hotel room or even the crappy comedy condo, and I'm sure you've heard innumerable stories I've about I've been to some. Yeah, they're bad. Yeah. Uh, but I was so young that at that time, um, 
all I saw was this is like a, like a really cool adventure. Um, I think when it stopped feeling that way, uh, it's probably around the time I stopped. Yeah, what was, what was that moment when you decided to stop doing stand-up and move off stage behind camera? Um, you know, I, I think I always suspected that my, my life would be more behind the scenes. Again, I never had any sort of illusions of myself as like one of the great voices in comedy. Um, but I think I had sort of figured out that my strengths were much more sort of producerial. Um, but then also I got out of film school and uh, I had a serious girlfriend who became my fiance, who became my wife. We got married when I was 24. And I think I just sort of felt like, well, you know, it was like being in a bar band when you're in college. Like, mm. that was fun. Um, but I don't see this leading to my ultimate destiny. And so as I started getting, you know, jobs, um, I had less time for it and I had less inclination to do it. There was also less opportunity because, uh, uh, you know, this was really the tail end of the of the boom. So I was, I was selling off big parts of my act. Um, and uh, I think I was doing that in a way to kind of um, almost sort of salt the earth, you know, mm -hmm. to sort of say, okay, well, I don't have any material anymore. So, uh, you know, uh, I guess that chapter is done. Um, and I, I kind of almost made like a real statement about it. Like the last few shows I booked, you know, I, I kind of made a point of saying, okay, you know, these these are it. These are the, you know. It's <laughs> this is the goodbye tour? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, it was. Uh, Did it, you have a ceremony after the last show? Uh, or anything no, to that effect? I don't think there was anything <laughs> ceremonial about it. I just, you know what, it's, it's sort of like if you say it enough times, mm -hmm. then you kind of have to follow through on it. Otherwise, um, you look kind of like an idiot. So, uh, more of an idiot. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it was like 92 mm. or okay. whatever it was. And what year did you meet Jonathan Winters? Well, I'd met Jonathan a couple of times at sort of like, like, uh, like Paley Center kind of functions mm -hmm. or whatever it was. And we struck up a conversation, but we really didn't like form a relationship until I interviewed him. So I was a part of this project uh, that's yes, still I'm ongoing. Glad bringing this up. Yeah, the Archive of American Television. Right. Yeah, so I helped to start that in 96, almost 20 years ago, uh, because of largely because of my relationship with Milton Berle, um, because they wanted to get Milton for the Archive. They reached out to me. What to was your relationship with Uncle Milty? I'd first met him when I was a comic, and then I had had some business dealings with him, and then we just became... Friends, you know, I've walked uh, around in your robes. Uh, uh, it, th there is a story that we uh, believe me. If you want to go down this path, we could. <laughs> that does involve Milton in a robe, um, but uh, I'm not sure. Are if you want to? Are you okay? Do you need therapy for it still? Or no, 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 no. It's it's fine. Oh, okay. Trust me, it's more than fine. It's a it's a wonderful memory and anecdote. And uh, we'll go on then. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, this is the story of how I came to see Milton Berle's penis twice. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Um, I, I, I like to say that I saw it twice because it was so big you had to see it in installments. <laughs> um, but uh, Milton had gotten booked to do a voiceover for the animated series The Critic. Mm -hmm. and he'd, 
uh, called me up to say that uh, they were going to let him put his own jokes into the script. Oh. So uh, he said, you know, come on over and uh, let's put some jokes into this thing. <laughs> his own jokes. Uh, so he <laughs> Well, yeah. Yeah, he, listen, he, okay. if he wanted a little, yeah. little help, uh, you know. Hey, that's, was, that's what you do. It was, it was, you, write, you sell jokes. It was my pleasure to, yeah. to do that. So okay, I, so you go over there. So I go over to his uh, condo on the Wilshire Corridor, and Milton was not a morning person. But it was morning, so he was uh, sitting up in a dressing robe, uh, knees uh, splayed, uh, with no underwear. So uh, I walk in, and there it hmm. was. And I will tell you, uh, as a uh, as a very uh, heterosexual male, mm -hmm. uh, it is literally the first time I swooned at the sight of another <laughs> man naked. <laughs> I just I walked in and it was like it was just right there and of course the you know, in old age too it, it, yeah well that it it certainly didn't uh, diminish in its um, um, scale mm. in age uh, I, I can't speak to its abilities or performance <laughs> but I will tell you I mm. just I was like Milton I oh <laughs> now the second time mm. I saw it. Uh, it was almost as though I needed to verify what I saw the first time. So I'm I was sure it was real. It wasn't. It wasn't like a, a hallucination. Exactly. You know, it's some kind of sort of uh, you know hypnotic suggestion because mm -hmm. again, it was legendary. So I'm having lunch with Milton at the Friars Club, and as luck would have it, we are standing side by side at two urinals, mm -hmm. and I did the thing that you're not supposed to do, which is I just kind of craned my neck back a little bit, and he caught me trying to peek, and he goes, is this what you wanted to see? And he turned around and like basically waved it at me, and I was so thrown that I literally <laughs> flailed my arms and slipped and fell onto the floor, <laughs> wet with uh, old Jew piss, uh, uh, because it's the, it's the Friars Club. And Milton, without uh, putting it away or zipping up, reached a hand <laughs> down to help me up. And I'm like, I'm fine. Just please put it away now. <laughs> So that is how I came to see Milton's penis twice. So the and archive, that and the archive of Academy and, Television yeah. wanted, wanted your help. They're like, exactly. you know. So so uh, several years later, mm -hmm. I interviewed him for the Archive of American Television. Mm -hmm. You can go look at the interview online. Uh, it was a really fun interview, and Milton, I think, is still very much in possession of all of his his faculties and memory and and power. Um, so it's great that that exists. And then subsequently, I did a lot of other interviews for the archive. So I did Sid Caesar, with whom I'd had a little bit of a relationship, and Bob Newhart, who I have known not well, but since I was a kid, because mm -hmm. I, I, I went to uh, elementary school with, with his kids. Um, and then they asked me to do Jonathan. And so Jonathan, who I had almost no relationship with, um, I was a little intimidated by. Uh, but a huge fan of, and through that process of interviewing him and then just subsequent contact, um, became very, very close. And he became truly one of the best friends I've ever had. And um, I, I literally think about him every day. Yeah, and you uh, helped put together his memorial. I did. I did. His family asked me um, to... Uh, 
kind of put together a, a video tribute that turned into a 42-minute documentary that we broke into four pieces and showed at the memorial. And then I went out to help his daughter just kind of plan the event. And uh, at the last minute, uh, she, I didn't realize that his daughter, Lucinda, had actually had in mind that I would even host the event which was at this big, uh, beautiful theater in Santa Barbara, the, Li the Libero Theater. So I, I literally helped to produce this sort of theatrical event and, and host it uh, for, for Jonathan, which, of course, was my enormous privilege to do. What, mm. Actually, before I ask you this, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about IFC, your period at IFC, because sure. you were involved with a lot of TV projects, either as a writer or a producer, uh, but you really kind of captured that lightning in a bottle kind of magic with your time at IFC. Oh, well, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, that was, it. look, it was a great opportunity. And, um, you know, there's, for me, never a greater opportunity than coming into a place and helping to, you know, um, create a strategy and a philosophy and... Um, and put into place practices where previously maybe there hadn't um, really hadn't been anything uh, in any significant way, you know, before that. So IFC was the independent film channel. They wanted to get into original programming. I think their inclination was that it was going to be comedic. They had done some originals through the right. years, but it never had been like one focused idea. And nothing that truly hit. Yeah, I mean, they had done... They had some things that were cult favorites, but not... Yeah, they'd done some interesting work, but it would be some reality shows, some right. some original one-off documentaries. Actually, the way I'd come there was they had done this amazing documentary um, series about Monty Python. I think it was a co-production with one of the UK yeah. channels. Uh, but I'd seen it while I was here in New York producing another show. I was doing, I was producing the series for uh, stars. Gravity. Yeah, like gravity. And so I went in there to say, hey, wow, you guys did this Python documentary. I think at that time they were running all of the old flying circus shows. Yeah. They may have even already been running Arrested Development. Um, so I knew that they were doing originals. Uh, so I went in to pitch them a show and it turned out that they were actually looking for somebody um, who had a producing and a programming background to come in and help them really meaningfully jumpstart their first big um, push into being a, a platform for originals. So during my time there, they rebranded the network. They sort of moved away from being the independent film channel. They really wanted to create this comedy brand. And in my first year there, we also went ad-supported. So the whole model of the network changed. And then... I had this opportunity as uh, the head of development to create kind of a brand vision and a strategy for, um, you know, for developing uh, shows that could be done, you know, um, obviously for a budget because right. we didn't have a lot in the way of resources, but that could be, you know, hopefully distinctive and, and create, a, you know, a unique brand for for IFC, so well, yeah. Portlandia and Comedy Bang Bang are certainly that. Listen, it was very fortunate that those shows happened so early in my tenure at IFC because you know when you come into any new job, 
you're probably given the most permission you're ever going to have <laughs> to kind of do your thing. And, you know, depending on the results, uh, you know, maybe you get a little bit more permission and a little bit more permission. So uh, I will tell you the Portlandia pitch came in in the first few weeks I was there uh, because my very good friend Andrew Singer, who had worked for me when I was at Karsty Werner, uh, runs Broadway Video. Okay. And he had this notion that these uh, web videos that Fred and Carrie had made uh, could be a thing. So he facilitated that first meeting, and then I had the, you know, the great pleasure and good fortune of shepherding that project through development onto the air. What 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 do you think you would learn from your other TV experiences that really came into play once you had the chance to run the show at IFC with development? Um, oh God, there's so many lessons. The you know the greatest lessons. Um, you know, probably, you know, Brandon Tartikoff used to say, you know, nobody knows everything. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, as a, as a young, fairly insecure sort of TV executive, um, I used to assume that, uh, you know, people in positions of power and authority, uh, knew better. Uh, they had the experience, they had, you know, the big title, they had the nicer office. And I used to kind of uh, suppress what I was thinking and what I was feeling because I would go, oh, okay, oh, oh, that's the way it should be done, okay. Uh, and then I learned, you know what? Again, Brandon said, nobody knows everything. So when something would be screaming at me in the back of my head, no, 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 this this makes sense. This is good. I can see the value in this. Uh, look, you can't do this all the time. You know, just legitimately, you won't ever be given the permission. And again, like like all of those people, uh, you know, I, I also have come to learn that uh, I'm also not always right. Mm -hmm. And I don't know everything. But every once in a while, you have to kind of go keep this on the track follow this through no no no. this is this is good and so yeah i think the the lessons that i had learned were um like specificity you know there's nothing i think to me more appealing and more distinctive than allowing things to be really super super specific as opposed to sort of I think the tendency to try and genericize everything. Um, so that's why I think my my particular um, calling seems to be in doing things that are maybe a little bit more niche. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I feel like a show like Portlandia or Comedy Bang Bang, um, those shows have such uh, an integrity to them uh, that comes from you know a place of again authenticity and specificity and. I think that kind of when you can see that in something, it's my job to like support it and protect it and and preserve it. Kind of like uh, Jonathan Winters. Oh well, I mean, uh, talk about authentic and specific and needs to be protected. The and you his know, what John's I think real frustration was that he didn't find a lot of venues where he was allowed to be his most authentic self. I mean, that's why I think so much of maybe his best work 
is like just doing panel with Jack Parr mm-hmm. or Carson because they knew just let him run. Right, just give him five, seven minutes and a table full of props and go. I mean, he was a really fine actor, and there's so many things you could point to, whether it's just Mad, 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 Mad World or The Loved One or that great episode of The Twilight Zone that he did with Jack Klugman where you can go, oh, no, no, he was a great actor. But Jonathan, at his best, um, was so inventive and so freeform. And, yeah, it was – I think it was heartbreaking to him that more people didn't recognize – like the magic that would happen when you just sort of gave him the opportunity to do what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there were certainly enough examples of it that he uh, he is one of the most influential comic voices this, I think this, this country has ever had. I second that emotion. <laughs> uh, is there any kind of uh, great lasting advice that he or Milton or any of the other comedians have given you that's kind of stuck with you as you move forward? Uh, You know what? I've learned... I still feel like I'm learning. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I think that, in a way, the great great realization is not how much you know, but but how much you have yet to learn. But, yeah, I mean, like, Sid Caesar, in the interview I did with him for the archive, this is part of why I love doing the interviews, because there's always something you take away from it. Why do you think I'm doing this? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing this? Uh, uh, so back to you and Sid Caesar. So Sid said, um, he said, first of all, you learn nothing from success. You only learn from failure, mm. um, which I thought was interesting. And the other thing he said is so much of this business is luck, but you have to be prepared for mm. luck. Um, I like that. Yeah. And... Uh, I think that so much of the work that we do is about preparing ourselves for the moment when we get lucky. Like, truly, that moment at IFC in sort of the early part of my tenure there, to me was like, oh, I had been sort of working towards whether it was all the stuff that I did at Super Deluxe when I was at Turner or the stuff that I'd even been working on as an independent producer during my time at Carsey Werner. It's like so many of the relationships that I had formed and so much of the experiences that I'd had, particularly doing, you know, um, you know, projects on a budget, uh, I think really gave me the tools that I needed to make the most of that opportunity in that little moment in time. So that was, again, just coming into IFC at that moment was very lucky for me, but fortunately I felt like I was, I was prepared to capitalize on that luck. Uh, you know, at least for a little while. Yeah, I, f- I firmly believe that the opportunities will always be there for you, but you need to be awake and alert to realize that that opportunity is even there. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it just passes you by, and someone else is going to take it. But, you know, the fact is that, like, I think that you can certainly make your opportunities happen. Mm. I, I, I believe that... Like the secret. <laughs> I, I jest. It's you, to me. It's about initiative. Mm, okay. Like I feel like right now in my capacity, sort of heading up this new venture, it's Big Beach TV. So much of it is about when you're starting anything new, about being a self-starter. And I feel like, look, again, you have to be lucky. But um, 
but you got to kind of move yourself close to where the luck is likely to happen. <laughs> you know? Is that what you would tell a, uh, a teenager or a preteen who came up to you after, after a panel or something? And uh, if, if a preteen came up to me, I would say, <laughs> look, I appreciate it, but, you know, I just I feel there's, there's too much downside, you know, potentially in this situation here for me. So maintain a safe distance, uh, you know. Right. But, uh, but apart from that, yeah. I, I would say, yeah, I, the, the great luck for me has been the people I've gotten to know. It has been such a privilege to have a little bit of time or even a lot of time or a personal association or a professional association with so many people that I think of as, you know, like brilliant minds and, and heroes. And each of those opportunities has been an opportunity for me to learn. As much as it's been like an opportunity to sort of capitalize on whatever that is and, mm-hmm. you know, do something that hopefully will allow me to continue to have a career, it's really been like a great ongoing education. So I think the thing that I would say to that teen or, or preteen, God help me, <laughs> is uh, figure out who's doing the work that you are most interested in emulating or being a part of and get yourself as close to the people that you feel are at the top of the game that you want to play. Um, you know, I think that it's just, uh, it's very hard to get get yourself started. Uh, but I feel like, you know, it's also hard to sort of keep yourself going. And I think if you're talented and you're creative and you're willing to work hard and you can work well with people, um, it's not impossible. You know, I, I, I feel like, like I'm 20 whatever it is years into mm-hmm. like this part of what I'm doing which is like making shows and you know working with people to you know help sort of realize their vision um, and I feel like you know relatively optimistic that I'll get to keep doing this for a while longer and again that's lucky uh, and it'll be lucky if there's you know another Portlandia, you know, down the road, but I feel like I've uh, I've prepared myself Mm. for that luck, so uh, I'm just kind of keeping my eyes open for it, you know, on the horizon. Well, Dan, I feel lucky to know you, Mm. and thank you for sharing your stories with me, and I look forward to seeing what comes next. Thank you, Sean. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. Theme music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Things first.